great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hi guys, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And this week we are doing a Colin show because, Chelsea, this week it's your birthday. It is. Happy birthday. Thank you. It is also your wife's birthday, which is quite crazy. Yeah, so I was born on September 13th, and she was born on September 14th, but she was born in Australia, so that's the same time. So basically, you're born on the same day. Yeah, we celebrate it on the same day, because that's the day when like her mom calls her and is like, happy birthday. We've also made this mistake before. I'm thinking about the Palm Springs 2020 trip where we tried to do two back-to-back birthdays. And it, we after that, we The agreed. second one is always sad. It's true. It's better to just have a chill day on day two on the 14th. Just do like a nice brunch. Yeah. Take it easy. Yeah. It's true. I just want to say, so I edited the calls for this episode. And we got one call from a fuck at that was like, nothing brings me more joy than listening to your podcast while listening to Christina Aguilera doing the directions on Waze. (laughs) And I just want to bring attention to the fact that if you have Waze, the navigation app, you can set the voice to Christina Aguilera. And I did it on the way here and it was incredible. I also love an attention deficit multitasking queen. That is something I would fucking do. Although I would also be having a conversation with Chelsea while listening to a podcast while having Christina Aguilera speak to me on Waze. It's not like she's like a bot. So it's not like she's like, turn left on La Cienega. She just says, turn left. But there's all of these funny things that they interject. Like I was listening to some music and Christina Aguilera like cuts in and, and was like, hey, There's a red light camera coming up. They're trying to do us dirty and not in a good way. Oh, I got it. Yeah, it it kind of delighted me. So I just wanted to pass that along. You know, I'm paying it forward. Very nice. On that note, should we get into the first call? Yeah. Hi, Lauren and Chelsea. I am sitting here watching Sharp Stick because you all talked about it on the podcast, so I had to watch it. But anyways, my question for you all is, what is your secret single behavior? Thank you for playing this. If you do, and I love you guys, thank you. This one really rocked me. (laughs) Did it? Well, I mean, look, there's certain behaviors I don't, I do alone that I don't want to admit to anyone. Like what? I don't want to say, what's your secret single behavior? I'm so acutely aware of it because Tat was just out of town for 10 days. Right. And I love alone time, but that much alone time, especially being like in this house by myself, it gets Bergman-esque. So my secret single behavior is staying up really late for absolutely no reason. Doing nothing. What do you mean doing nothing? Like, well, sometimes I just like work really late and other times, I don't know, I just like end up like surfing the internet or something like doing, doing nothing, like watching SVU reruns. Um, And then I'm like, it's three in the morning. I agree with that. I I didn't realize that would qualify as a secret a secret single behavior for me ever since I've gotten back from Europe I will fall down periodic YouTube rabbit holes now it seems to be hoarders okay and I can't stop watching hoarders like just having it on in the background when I get ready and then like while I'm cooking which is super gross because the (laughs) homes are very gross but then I love that but watching hoarders is I mean not that I watch pornography, but it's like the escalating levels when you watch pornography. Right. You like need- you have to get a more fucked up house each yeah. time. Where you need like, I don't want to hoard. I don't want a rat hoarder. Like, <laughs> like one of, the, one of the saddest, genuinely saddest episodes of Hoarders I ever watched was a woman who hoarded media. What is that? Not just like me and you? <laughs> No, her son died in 1985, and from that moment, she never wanted to miss anything, so she would record 
everything that was on television. And so they were VHSs. But then that's just like an extremely cool hobby. I don't know what you're talking about. But then once it got to DVDs, it was like, great, I can record even more. But then she was making family members do it. Then it filled her home. Then it filled someone else's home. And then as a middle-aged millennial, I then start becoming obsessed with, these are all people with homes. They have homes. These aren't fucking renters. They have fucking mortgages or they don't even have mortgages and they fucking ruin their homes. I get it. It's a mental disorder, blah, blah, blah. But also hoarders... Yes, it's a mental disorder. But also hoarders intersex uh, for HGTV heads... Home renovation shows? So did Anyone that watches these HGTV shows where they look for homes, they are the worst people and they don't deserve a house. So they should just be taking them into hoarder houses just <laughs> to traumatize them because they're terrible. Honestly, in this world where we're mashing IP... I think we need like a hoarders meets HGTV show. So anyway, that I, I that's it for you. Also, I wear you know this. I wear this Target robe that I got with you at Target <laughs> in 2017 all the fucking time. See, I let that robe go in one of my like Marie Kondo fits. I can't find something better than that. I mean, it's hot as fuck, so I don't really wear it now in the summertime, but. It's just so chilly throughout the workday where I work from home that I will put that robe on and then I will like go to collect a UPS package and I'm like, oh, it's 3 p.m. And I'm dressed like a normal human being. I have normal human being clothes underneath, but I am wearing a bathrobe (laughs) over it. Love that for you. My other secret single behavior is listening to really depressing folk music which I would never do around Tat. But whenever she's gone, like I get back on my like Judy Sill, Joanna Newsom bullshit and I live for it. I guess what I'm saying is that like I get clinically depressed and then because I'm clinically depressed, like between the folk music and the like staying up really late, then I go to self-improvement. Oh. Which is like hiking, like going on a juice fast, which is basically what I did last week. That is true. Before we recorded a podcast a few weeks ago, you were like, I'm going to walk around your home where you live and then... Your neighborhood. My neighborhood. Not your home. I'm not like hiking in your house. Anyway, next question. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Chelsea. This is Sonia from Kansas City. Love the podcast. I've had this question in my head all week to ask you to. And I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about the J.W. Anderson pigeon clutch. And I couldn't help but wonder if you guys would think that's a carry bag or if it was just a carry bag in general. And my second question was, if you two think this is a bag that is worth purchasing. Let's put it this way. I think that Pat Field would want Carrie to carry the J.W. Anderson pigeon bag. And then Michael Patrick King would be like, girl, no, like this looks like an actual pigeon. See, I was going to say the same thing. I believe that the costume designers that costume Carrie Bradshaw would want the J.W. Anderson pigeon clutch, but I don't think the person Carrie Bradshaw in the world, in the actual Sex and the City world, would like go and buy that. I think it's more likely that it would be a plot point in the same way that the Judith Lieber bag was yeah. back in the day. Although maybe they could do that situation in the reverse on end just like that and have like Carrie be dating some cool downtown guy who gives her the J.W. Anderson pigeon clutch and then she's like this asshole doesn't even understand me which yet again like the Judith Lieber bag it'd be like Carrie Bradshaw would wear a pigeon clutch yeah it's incredible and I do support buying it but on sale got it like if you're wealthy enough to have like you have 10,000 bags already then buy it at full price just buy it I do love that this caller is like, Lauren, I already know that you wouldn't buy this bag, but that's actually not true. I I would buy it for sure. Yeah, I do fuck with a surreal statement piece bag. What I also enjoy about this bag is it would annoy people so much. I feel like it's a real collector's item and I would buy it if it was like $300, but it's like what, $900? It's... $8.90. It's one of those things that when the essence sales happens, you'll be searching for. (laughs) Let's set our alerts now. That's the type of like essence sale Russian roulette where you're like, (laughs) it's 30% off, but I bet it'll go down to 50 before it sells out. I just need like 
stats like how many of these bags have been made you know did they overproduce the jw anderson pigeon clutch thinking that people would buy it or did they underproduce they underproduced i don't know can someone like leave us an anonymous tip Although, I just want one. Yeah, although if we go halvesies on it, then it's not that expensive. If we timeshare this bag. It's not the worst idea you've ever had. Hey, guys. Uh, I was just listening to the podcast. I was thinking it would be interesting if you did an episode on divorce. I feel like it was a pretty good show and nobody ever talks about it. So just a thought. All right, goodbye. Would we ever do a very special episode on the short-lived series Divorce? Was it short-lived? Wasn't there like three seasons of it? Yeah, I think that's relatively short-lived. That's not short-lived. That's like a successful TV show. I I stand corrected. It was short-lived for me because I only watched the first like four episodes and then fell off. But for other people, it was a whole ass show. Yeah, that's that was going to be my answer is like, I guess this would entail us actually finishing the series divorce. Should we? The people are saying yes. I do think that divorce in Sarah Jessica Parker's post Sex and the City oeuvre gives a window into her own interests aka dark Carrie, which is kind of what this character is right like I, I think we've talked about this on a different podcast where divorce is almost what carrie's life would have been if she did marry aiden and moved up to suffer and kind of lost her entire being yeah it's depressing it makes me sad but you know molly shannon's there that's true so there's that and thomas aiden church i enjoy him i mean sure and Tracy Fine. Letts. Isn't Tracy Letts Molly Shannon's husband? I forget. Wonderful cast. It's been a minute. Uh, we'll put that on the docket for 2023. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Chelsea. My question, I just listened to the question episode. Who is Isabel Luper that you guys always reference? Like, I Googled this person multiple times when you mention her. Chelsea, I know you love her. Please give me the rundown on who this girl is because she does not exist on the internet. Thank you. I love this question, and I'm sure this isn't the only listener that's wondered this. I think part of the problem with your Googling is that Isabel Huppert's last name like has a silent H and a silent T. She's a very famous French actress. She's the greatest living actress, actually, so everyone should really know about her. Okay, I'll, I'll be a little bit of a, a human IMDb. You spell her last name H-U-P-P-E-R-T. Isabel Huppert is a French stage and film actress who has been working since the 1970s. I believe her first American credit is Heaven's Gate. I would say that she came to prominence in her later career, first in Michael Haneke's The Piano Teacher, which led to David O. Russell's much maligned I Heart Huckabees, <laughs> and then Paul Verhoeven, who directed Basic Instinct and Showgirls, returned to form with the film Elle, which she was nominated for an Oscar for, and then the totally campy Greta, which we saw opening night. Yes. Well, she's been in amazing, successful French movies since the 70s, but she hasn't really caught on with American audiences. Like, she has one Oscar nomination. She has one Golden Globe. And I'm sure she has a César, which is the... She has two Césars, actually. There you go, which is the French Academy Awards. But... Why we love her is she's constantly unbothered by like volatile male director behavior. If you know the David O. Russell screaming at Lily Tomlin on the set of I Heart Huckabees, that incident, there's two, but one that takes place in a car with Dustin Hoffman. Isabella Perez is in between Lily Tomlin who's getting screamed at by the director and Dustin Hoffman who is trying to mitigate the situation. And Isabella Perez is just there in between them unbothered. Putting on makeup, reapplying her lipstick. A true icon. I looked at her Wikipedia entry, which is incredible. The first sentence is, Isabelle Huppert is a French actress described as one of the best actresses in the world. She is known for her portrayals of cold and disdainful characters devoid of morality. Have you ever heard a cooler Wikipedia entry in your life? See, a lot of people think that Meryl Streep is the best living actress. <laughs> And Meryl Streep had to go like to a really, really dark place in like Sophie's Choice, for example. Right. But for Isabel Huppert, every movie she's ever done is Sophie's Choice. And you just can't help but be fascinated with a woman that is so willing to go to those dark places. And she does it. You would think for a French actress, she has a lot of actory bullshit 
She doesn't because when Elle came out, Elle, for those who don't know, opens with a fairly graphic rape scene. And so the interviewers, American journalists is doing that, you know, journalist thing where it was like, wasn't it so hard to take this character home with you? And, you know, like in Michael Haneke, he's the piano teacher. And she went, no, it does not bother me. I just go home. I do the work. It's like, yes. <laughs> well, also I should mention, she had a new movie that just came out at the Venice Film Festival. That's why she was there in that fabulous Armani Privé gown. And this is this movie, I forget what it's called, but it's going to be the Isabelle Huppert version of Norma Ray. Except because it's one of her movies, of course, there's like a very graphic and violent rape scene. She's in two kinds of movies. Ones where she's a literal monster, like the piano teacher or Ma Mare, or ones where like she's a victim, like the most traumatic thing happens to her imaginable, like Madame Bovary or um, L. Fuck what L. No, I'm trying to think of um, the story of women, which I thought about recently because of the Roe versus Wade thing. She, this is so typical Isabel Huppert. Like she plays like an abortionist that just gets executed. Like that's like half of her movies are like that. Like she dies at the end of like 60% of her movies, either by like suicide or execution or like being murdered by someone. Or in the case of Elle, she murders someone. But you know what's a rare bright spot is Eight Women. Have you ever seen that movie? No, what's that? She's in a supporting role. It's a musical. Catherine Deneuve and a lot of oh. other like incredible French actresses are in it. But if you're scared of movies like the ones we're describing, <laughs> I would suggest Eight Women. And before we go to the next call, we should also say that we love her because she is lifelong friends with Kim Cattrall. Yeah, because they were in some movie together, which we've never seen, which we need to see. Also, have you ever seen her in a play? She's also like a prolific stage actress yeah no but the second she's on the stage we will fly there oh i've seen her twice i'm obsessed in new york yeah i saw her in quartet which is like a version of dangerous liaisons that was like a robert wilson production which was incredible chic like very like moogler of today vibes Ooh. and then i saw her in the maids with kate blanchett oh which was like the theater going highlight of my life. I don't know if anything will ever top it. It was so fucking cool. Anyway, she's the best. Yeah. Best person ever. So Dude. that is who Isabelle Huppert is. Yeah. She's cool. She's tiny. She's unbothered. Hi, Chelsea and Lauren. For someone else whose nerd shit is fashion, I would love to know, what designers or collections made you first fall in love with fashion and pursue a life of fashion nerddom? And related to that, what designers do you look for in vintage or any other tips and tricks for the vintage market? I know it's a little bit saturated these days, so would love some professional opinions. Chell's probably going to have a way cooler answer than me. I'm a bit more of a basic bitch. So my answer is all that Gucci Group was and what it became, you know, Tom Ford's ascension as a designer, the idea that fashion could capture the cultural zeitgeist, the idea that you could run a fashion label like a brand, investing and acquiring other brands from... The idea that you could like shave like a Gucci logo into a woman's pubic hair and make that an ad. All of that stuff. No, but acquiring YSL, investing in McQueen, investing in Stella McCartney. I'd also say Alexander McQueen's fashion shows in the early 2000s, specifically the spring-summer 2004 They Shoot Horses, Don't They collection. Oh, iconic. Where he takes the plot of Sidney Pollock's They Shoot Horses, Don't They, which is about a Depression-era dance competition that they used to do where they would feed and pay people. Uh, the last person was left dancing and people would like dance till they died. And that was the runway show. Yes. Also, if you've never seen that film, watch it immediately. It's as depressing and fucked up as every Isabelle Huppert film we just mentioned, but it's still incredible. Jane Fonda, one of her best performances. Also, Susanna York in an iconic supporting role. Yes. But the idea that you could take inspiration from a film, transmute it exactly how it was in the film, and it be a fashion show, and the clothes are incredible, and the models are performing and it feels so evocative and emotional yeah it had the most intense choreography we'll obviously put a video of the show in the show notes but you have to see it in motion you can't like look at the pictures yeah i went back and looked at the vogue.com stills and it does not do it justice and then lastly i would say stella mccartney at chloe 
Like, I know she's a total, yes. what we would call a Nepo baby, but the idea that someone young and cool was at an old brand and was revitalizing it. And then when she goes on, because Tom Ford invests in her solo label, that her best friend, Phoebe Philo, takes over and makes it even cooler. And just seeing how two people who were so close together could pivot, design, and change an existing brand and it still feel relevant. Yeah. Stella McCartney and Phoebe Philo era of Chloe had a huge impact on me also. But I think before I even knew of that, got into that, my gateway was watching 60 Minutes with my parents and Isaac Mizrahi was on because Unzipped was coming out and he was being interviewed. Right, Unzipped is a documentary that Isaac Mizrahi released in 1994, which was kind of, he was the first designer to in a way, mythologize himself. Why not make a documentary about my latest runway collection? Well, there were documentaries before that, but yeah, his boyfriend decided to make a really cool documentary about him. And that was my gateway drug into Isaac Mizrahi. I watched Unzipped, obsessed with Unzipped, obsessed with his work. And also I was really into teen magazines. Like when I was a tween, like Sassy was before my time. Unfortunately, they had like fired the whole original staff by the time that I was like 12, 13, whenever you get into those magazines. But I feel like it did make Seventeen Magazine cooler. And Seventeen Magazine covered a lot of designers like Betsy Johnson, Anna Sui, and I was really into them. Like anyone that oh. was doing that sort of like rock and roll baby doll look was just like the coolest thing that I had ever seen at well, that time. Also, Betsy Johnson was so predictive of, I think about a reformation or something like that. The idea that someone was showing at New York Fashion Week yet had a store at, I mean, I won't say almost every mall, but the, the mall that I went to in the Valley had a Betsy Johnson store. Yeah, I would go to the one in San Francisco, which was like a really important <laughs> formative experience for me. Yeah, I, I love I love her. I love that shit forever. The second part of the question is, what designers do we look for in vintage? What are our tips and tricks? Okay, designers I look for in vintage, I actually don't buy a lot of designer vintage. Most vintage stuff I have is no-name vintage, but I do have some amazing designer pieces. I have a, a Hanamori dress that I love. Uh, she just died rest in peace I have great stuff from like Leonard I love like lesser known British designers like Jean Varen which was designed by this guy named John Bates Malcolm Starr I also really love this label called Lucianne Beverly Hills, which was like an upscale loungewear designer okay. based in, in LA Beverly Hills. And they make like the craziest shit. It's like, you know, marabou trimmed dressing gowns and stuff like that. I have a lot of that. And for shopping for vintage, I would say go to the vintage fairs. The vintage fairs are the best place to buy clothes. But if you're looking for a specific designer, like it's eBay, it's Etsy, it's the real, real, it's setting alerts. Yeah, it's Vestiaire Collective, which has been a recent obsession of mine. And a lot of their no-name vintage stuff that they have listed has been really interesting to see. I mean, as I've gotten older and thankfully have more money, I've just started buying stuff that I grew up loving, like buying Tom Ford era Gucci. And as you know, I have an obsession with the uh, horse collection that Stella McCartney did for Chloe that appeared on Sarah Jessica Parker in Sex and the City. So that's those are kind of my acquisitions. I think if I was to collect vintage uh, which is an aspiration. I feel like it would be like Hane Mori. It would, and it would be like all of those British designers from the 60s and 70s, like Ozzy Clark, Tia Porter, Xandra Rhodes, Halston, you know, what have you. Because yes. that's my favorite shit. I have a thought about something that I would love for you to, to critique, and that is Selling Sunset. I think we've talked about Selling Sunset a little bit, I watch the show because it combines my two loves, which is toxic Los Angeles culture and real estate. Yeah, I used to live very close to the Oppenheim group, the Oppenheimer group, Oppenheim. Yes, Oppenheimer is the guy that created the nuclear bomb. <laughs> right, right. I got them mixed up. And it's really funny seeing the journey of no one hanging outside to them having to put in tinted windows because there's so many tourists 
taking photos in front of it all day. Yeah, clearly these Oppenheim brothers are very smart to, I mean, there's a ton of real estate firms in Los Angeles. No one had really heard of this firm until they started this reality show, but how do I put this kindly? The show's premise seems to be giving escorts real estate licenses. Right. That's like a significant percentage of realtors in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, they all look like fembots. Obviously, the breakout star is Christine Quinn, someone who spent her childhood watching reality television and being like, okay, this is who I need to be. I'm also fascinated by um, the burgeoning romance between Chriselle and noted Australian DJ G-Flip. Selling Sunset has the same problem as the Kardashians, which is they're now in the news so much that by the time the show premieres, people are already out of relationships that are documented in the now debuting season of the show. Right. Like one of the brothers was dating. Yes. One of them. Chriselle. Chriselle. Okay. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yes, and when that season debuted that showed their relationship, she already was dating G-Flip, so it was a little confusing. Yeah, they are really funny looking in person. Like, I saw them out and about, like, quite a bit. Chriselle or the Oppenheim brothers? The Oppenheim brothers. Like, they would always be at that Takaya that we love on Sunset. Yes. It's, yeah, it's an event to see them. I've only watched a few episodes of the show, but I get it. I'm just not the biggest reality person. And I'm very triggered by how ugly the properties are. Yeah, and they also have this weird thing where if they take a step outside five square miles of West Hollywood, they're like Britney Spears when she cries during that Diane Sawyer interview. She's like, ew, what is this? Like they go to a listing in Los Feliz or Los Feliz, depending on how you pronounce it. And they're like, we're in a place called Los Feliz? Like, what is this place? Have you started watching Selling the OC yet? I can't. I can't commit. Oh, I started watching it. And? I mean, the houses are slightly more interesting, but not by much. Like, it's still a weird, gross vibe. I don't appreciate their valley erasure as well. <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. No one's made our, our dream television show, which is like deco mid-century and postmodern buildings of uh, the valley. All right, well, those are our thoughts on Selling Sunset until the next season, which I'm sure will take eight more months to premiere. Hey, ladies. Uh, love the pod. I was just wondering, I just watched season four, episode three, Defining Moments, when Carrie walks in on Big's new girlfriend doing coke in the bathroom. Do you think Big was participating in that? And do you think he's okay dating a much younger girl than him that does coke? I just don't see it. Yes, for sure he would do coke. If he doesn't do coke, it's because he did so much coke in his 20s and 30s that he had to stop because it was interfering with his job. Yeah, He definitely did in the 80s. Like, if you remember that scene in American Psycho where Jason Bateman and whoever the guy Justin Thoreau plays is doing coke in a bathroom at, like, Danceteria, like, that was big. Right. But the reality of the situation is that Sex in the City is very weird in that it paints this picture that in the 90s, cocaine was like completely passe and like only the most fucked up people did it when in fact like it's just like a totally normal thing. And Carrie would do coke every weekend and so would Samantha and Stanford and Anthony. And that's a fact. Yeah, how do you think Carrie stays so thin without ever working out? I'm sure he definitely did it when he was briefly dating Willow Summers. Yeah, he relapsed then. And if he doesn't do coke, I think he's fine putting up with a 20-year-old doing coke if she still fucks him at the end of the night. Yeah, he doesn't care. Like, that would be the reason that Big stopped doing coke, is that he couldn't get hard anymore as he got older. Hi, Lauren and Chelsea. This is Melissa calling from Orange County, California. I have a question for the cast canteen, Chelsea. Um, I noticed, because I follow you on your personal page as well as on the Every Outfit page, that you always wear caftans. And I was just wondering what the story behind that is. Is there a reason? Do you hate pants? Okay, well, there's a lot of reasons why. <laughs> One, I've always been obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor, and she wore caftans. Two, 
I have a lot of vintage clothes. So you just like get caftans over the years. But I'll, at this point, I've amassed a lot. Like I probably have like 30 or 40, I would estimate. Like we all had films that we would watch over and over again in high school or college and we just burn out. Like for me, that was true romance. And I feel like clothing genre, that was caftans. Because you have not purchased a new caftan in a bit. No, I have. Oh. I just get ones that are more like, like I get like black ones and stuff now like more like minimalist ones more on the Halston side of things now sorry my my mind just went to like 40 years from now when we're on an episode of hoarders because you've hoarded caftans (laughs) I have well it's also because I like wearing dresses because I can't be bothered to mix and match separates like it's too much work I'd rather just wear one thing and accessorize it yeah and one of the great things about LA is that it's warm all the time so you like you literally don't have to layer or do any of that stuff but also I'm someone whose weight has always fluctuated and I don't like to buy different clothes like I like to wear the same shit I love wearing caftans when I'm on the thin side. I love wearing caftans when I'm heavier. And actually, I think more thin people should wear caftans because it looks major. Like the Olsen twins do it. Like I think of someone like Lee Radswell who looked incredible in caftans. So I love them. So should I start wearing caftans? I think they look good on everyone. I think it's a universally flattering garment. All right, then. Hey, you two. This is Stan calling. Thanks so much for the show. It's one of the funniest, best parts of my week. Um, I'm calling because I want to get your take on moving to L.A. from New York. I'm actually a grad student at Parsons, and I have this fantasy of moving to L.A. in a few years when I'm all done with my program. So I wanted to hear if you have any tips or just things to keep in mind uh, for those of us contemplating a move from the New York City to L.A. Thanks so much. Bye. So this fuck at is clearly having like a Joan Didion and goodbye to all that moment. <laughs> and if you haven't read that famous essay, now is the time. But also, I feel like if you're about to cross the country, it's time for you to say goodbye to like half of your possessions. Like you have to like pare things down, do some ruthless editing. It'll be super therapeutic. You'll probably have to ship your possessions like in some sort of freight situation, which is what I did. But then only the best stuff from New York will come with you and you can start a new journey here. I was going to say, if you live in New York, then you won't have sticker shock moving to Los Angeles. Yeah. Like only people that have lived in other metropolitan cities think that LA is quote unquote cheap. Yeah, well, it is compared to New York. It's much cheaper to live here. My suggestion would be obviously come to visit. Listen to Joe Didion's (laughs) audiobook of the White Album when you're on the plane. But really hone in on the neighborhood you want to live in. Yeah, you should definitely like move into a long-term Airbnb rental first and then figure out where you want to live. Because LA, there's a quote that's attributed to Dorothy Parker, although most people say she never actually said this, but this describes Los Angeles the best, which is LA is 72 suburbs in search of a city. Like if you think that Los Angeles has an epicenter the way that New York does, Los Angeles really doesn't. And if you have a friend that moves to Santa Monica, they might as well move to Santa Barbara. You're never seeing that person again. (laughs) Yeah, all the neighborhoods are like really different. So you just need to like go to a bunch of neighborhoods, figure out which one you like. And then like, obviously there's lots of listings online for apartments, but you also need to walk up and down the streets of the neighborhoods you like, because in LA there's four rent signs on every building where there's an apartment for rent. It's like a very common thing. And then you just like call the number and you get a booking. And a lot of those people, like they don't have their shit together. Like it's not even online. And despite what people say that no one walks in LA, if you select correctly, you can find a neighborhood that is walkable. If that's something you want. It depends on what your needs are. Like if you want a lot of space and don't mind to drive, you could move like deep into the valley and get like a house. Yeah, and every neighborhood is cool for different reasons. Like even deep in the valley in Tarzana, like that's where Paul Thomas Anderson lives. Right. Hi, Chelsea and Lauren, longtime listener, first time caller. I have a question for you. I have a friend who's very conservative, most likely voted for Trump twice. Um, anti-choice, it's pretty bad. And I'm struggling with keeping a friendship with this person and I've known them for 
almost my entire life. I'm just curious if you've had experiences with this. It seems like such a big deal to have a friend that you can't connect to about like very important issues. So just curious what you think. Thanks. Love you guys. Bye. Yeah, sorry. You have to let them go. <laughs> like, I hate to be the one to say this and I wish there was another solution, but um, yeah, sorry. That's not your friend anymore. See, I disagree. Oh, okay. Okay. Hear me out. So if when you spend time with this person, you feel like disgusting every time, like energetically depleted, etc. Also, if they're trying to push their deranged views on you every single time, mm -hmm. that's also like they need to go. But if it's someone that you've known forever, that you have history with, who's there for you, you know, despite the fact that they voted for Trump twice, I think you should stay the course just because I think that we're starting to live in a world where everyone is like in their own little echo chamber, where everyone is consuming whatever media aligns with their viewpoints. And I don't know, I think sometimes you just have to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone, right? I don't know what this says about me, but the anti-choice thing, I find a more a non-negotiable than the voting for Trump thing. I'm assuming that this just permeates every conversation. And uh, again, maybe I'm projecting, but what I took from this call and what I'm imagining the situation is, is that it is so eroded any foundation of any conversation. Right. Like, obviously, if they're talking about their like pro-life shit all the time, you have to cut them off. But is that the case? Or is this someone that's committed to being like, I know we don't agree. I'm not going to torment this person yeah. with my viewpoints. Because I think that yeah. is different. And if it's someone that you want to have in your life and you don't need to have beyond a surface conversation with, then fine. But I think, yeah, it, dep it really depends like how valuable is this person in your life? How important is this person within the context of your life? Because if this is some random that you met in college that you've known for four years, like, fuck that. I, I agree yeah. with what you're saying. If it's like, I have this point of view, you have that point of view, but we talk bullshit about the Kardashians and this never comes up, then that's a different thing. Yeah, like, for example, like, my mother and my uncle, very different political views, but they respect each other enough to never talk about it. Right. And that's loving in its own weird way. Right. And I always kind of respected that. And we live in a culture, in our cancel culture, that's very like throw the baby out with the bathwater that I don't necessarily agree with. For sure. But at the same time, if this person is terrible, fuck them. Yeah, you don't need them. Hi, guys. I have a question that I feel like maybe you two are equipped to answer me. I am 27 years old and was born in the year 1995. Am I Gen Z or am I a millennial? Okay, so if you're a millennial, the cutoff is 1995. And I know this because Tap was born in 1995. And I think it's better to be the youngest of a generation than the oldest. Like you'd rather be the youngest millennial than the oldest Gen Z, right? Ah, yes. Like that's just like a better look. Not to be ageist, but... It's okay. Gen Z already thinks that millennials are lame, which is funny because they don't realize the generation below them is going to say the same shit about them when they're our age. I think they know that. So yeah, take that badge of honor as the youngest millennial. Hey, Chelsea and Lauren, longtime listener since episode one. I'm having an interior design dilemma, and I know we generally talk about pop culture and fashion, but um. Chelsea, particularly your bookshelf um, arrangement has been major inspo for me and you just finding, I'm assuming like a cool mod house in the Hollywood Hills, I think, um, major inspo. Question, I am rent controlled in West Hollywood. I'm 33. I've lived here for eight years and I'm very anxious about giving up this sweet, sweet low rent that I got in 2014. However, I'm now 33 and not 25. And I look around and I'm like, fuck, this apartment sucks. Like, you know, the 70s and 80s apartments in West Hollywood, you know, them. um, so my question is, help me fall in love or make peace with this apartment that I have. And what are your most 
apartment-friendly, renter-friendly upgrades that I can make to not want to die every time I come home. I have, you know, a moderate budget, but it's like, what am I, I can't, I can't help the popcorn ceiling. Like, what am I doing? Okay, love you, bye. Well, one, thank you for listening since episode one. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think you should move. Oh, I was going to say you can't leave your rent-controlled apartment. Oh, really? But if you hate your apartment, it's never going to be okay. But also, I don't know what's wrong with your apartment. Like, if your problem with your apartment is that the light fixtures are terrible, that's fine. That can be fixed. But if your problem with your apartment is that there's no windows, like, you just have to move. What I got from this call is the biggest issue that she cited was the popcorn ceilings, which I grew up in a house with popcorn ceilings. And I think you just have to lean into that mid-century 1960s aesthetic. I feel like that's more like 80s. Like you need some good postmodern furniture. So that's your recommendation. Yeah. My recommendation is get postmodern furniture. Again, if you haven't read Marie Kondo's books, read them and then like get rid of half of your shit because having a sparse minimal space will really let your postmodern furniture shine. And you can donate all of that stuff to Out of the Closet, which is a really good thrift store in West Hollywood. And then your crap will be sold and fund HIV testing in your neighborhood. And you get a tax write-off. Yeah, but do you bother to like wait for them to give you the receipt? Uh, no. Yeah. And also with all of that money you save from the rent-controlled apartment, if there is stuff you like, you could just put it into storage with all that extra money you have. Yeah, but I think sometimes with rent control, I understand the financial advantages, but I think people get locked into staying in places and stuck in a period of their life that they need to get out of. And sometimes it's better, like West Hollywood is a very expensive neighborhood. Yes. Maybe you move out of West Hollywood to a cheaper neighborhood and get a nicer apartment. That is true. I was thinking about, you once very succinctly said that some apartments are just fucked. (laughs) Like I think about, (laughs) it's so true though. I think about my first apartment in New York, which was a railroad apartment where I (laughs) slept in the hallway and there was truly no fixing it. Like every time I come back to New York, I go to one coffee shop that opened the year that I moved into this apartment that's still there. And I will walk by this apartment and I was with you once and you were like, that's when you were like, some apartments are just fucked because every time I go, that was a nice apartment, but you did live next door to a hoarder. No, no, no. That was the second apartment. Oh, okay. So I only went to the second apartment. Yes. Okay. I missed the first one. In the 15 years since I've lived in that apartment, I walk by it and no one has been able to make it look nice. Well, the problem with New York apartments is that they'll take a normal apartment building and just cut up the units like in these demented ways to make more units. So everything is like a fucking like German expressionist film where everything is just like these insane angles and you have like a triangular bathroom and it's like the seal, like I had an apartment, my last apartment in New York, every room, the ceiling was a drastically different height. Why? I couldn't fucking tell you. This call also reminded me that in my first apartment building, there was a guy named Serge who fancies himself an interior designer that did all sorts of illegal renovations like cut a window in between the apartments change the tile and not just like that sticky stuff the peel and stick that every diy tiktoker talks about like yeah they love that shit did very permanent changes to the apartment and i assume he still doesn't have the apartment but a few years ago he was He still maintained that apartment and he was renting it on Airbnb. Great. Good for him. The reality is that a lot of apartments, like I've done major renovations to apartments before too, but they're such shitty apartments that the landlord like doesn't really care. Right. You know? And you have style in this guy. I mean, what he did did make the apartment look better, but... But yeah, I've definitely like removed a door or two or like... That apartment where I stripped and sanded and painted the floors white. Like, that was fucked. The last apartment? Yeah. Hi, Chelsea and Lauren. Um, Long time suckette. First time caller. I love the podcast. I love everything you guys say. I feel like I'm learning so much about fashion, which is something, like, I'm super interested in, but I've never actually been able to, like, delve into. So thank you so much. 
Um, I have a question. I am moving from Indianapolis to New York City to start my legal career and really like enter my Miranda moment. And I only own suits from like H&M. And although like no shade to H&M, I, everything fits so horribly. And I always feel like a little kid playing dress up in like her dad's closet. So my question is like, do you have any places that you like getting workwear that looks like elevated and nice and expensive and maybe not super expensive, but I am working like a big law job in New York. So like medium expensive and nice. It'll last a long time. Thank you so much. And I'm obsessed with you guys. Bye. So one, congrats on your new big law job in New York. My first piece of advice would be find a tailor. Like a tailor can make fast fashion look a hundred times more upscale than it is. If you're not tailoring everything, you're missing the point. Like I tailor like t-shirts so that they're the same length. Yeah, no clothing fits me. And so getting a tailor (laughs) has been life-changing. And I've taken stuff that I bought at flea markets and spent like $160 tailoring them to the point where my tailor is like, why? And it's like, because I cannot find this anywhere else. And it will look like a row coat when you tailor this properly to my body. It's true because fit and proportion can make or break a garment. Like you can kind of get away with something being cheaply made or like the fabric's not that great, but if it fits and if it sits on your body in a way that's flattering. Like if you tailor a $169 Zara suit, it will look, I'm not going to say on par with the row, but like not too dissimilar. It certainly is not going to look like a Zara suit anymore. Yeah, but for fast fashion, for suits, I would go to Koss or to Uniqlo if yeah. you can't afford Koss. Yeah, I was going to say you have your Theory, your Vins, your J. Crew. I would say at that price point, I really like the Frankie Shop for slacks. Like the quality is, I would say on par with fast fashion, but you have more of a cooler row-esque tailoring and details. Okay. If you want to search a little, I find that looking up Donna Karen and Ralph Lauren yields really good results on the real reel at a very economical price. Okay, yeah, that's good advice. Like I just saw a pair of Max Mara slacks that I'm sure retailed for $600, $800 that were for sale for 48 bucks. And it's just because they don't have the same cool resale value as a Prada or a Gucci. But if you're getting like mid-range designer suits, I would also suggest acne. Not that I wear them, but Tat has a lot of them and they're gorgeous. Like they're pretty timeless, but like some of them are trendier, but like trendy in the right way. Like they right now are making more suits that are sort of bigger, slouchier. Like women's suits are very much moving away from like hyper tailored. Of course, that's always in style and will always come back. But right now in the current climate, we're in something that's looser, which I love. And again, if you don't mind searching a little bit, what I do is I will look around at Pinterest or even different fashion websites and and see how, like I'll go to Moda Operandi and see how things are styled. And then I'll go to Etsy, eBay, Real Real Vestiaire, and I'll type in those things like trench coat, camel pants, what have you, and see what comes up. Yeah. You can kind of always get a good trench coat at a fast fashion place. Like, Cost will make a good one. Uniqlo will make a good one. So anyway, good luck. Send us fit pics. Hi, ladies. Love the podcast. Love the Patreon. I'm calling today because I want to hear your thoughts on Entourage. My boyfriend and I tried to go one for one. I would show him an episode of Sex and the City. He would show me an episode of Entourage. And we had to stop after a handful of episodes because neither of us could stand the other's show. So I would love to know what you think as to whether or not Entourage is just the cis pet male version of Sex and the City, or if, as I argued, Sex and the City is just ultimately more superior. Chelsea has asked me to lead this. Because <laughs> I've only watched the first season. Yeah, I am someone that has watched all eight seasons of Entourage. I completely understand why you and your boyfriends respectively bowed out of this. We'll watch one episode of Entourage for one episode of Sex and the City. A weird um, double feature, I would say. But it's kind of cool, though. It is the male version of Sex and the City. However, you are correct. Sex and the City is superior. 
Yeah, of course. But Entourage, like Sex in the City, did a really, really good job of capturing Los Angeles. Yes, and like Sex in the City, this weird fantasy version of Los Angeles. Like I was I was living in LA when that show was going on. I was like, oh, okay, I guess the Earth Cafe is really cool. And guess what? The Earth Cafe is still fucking there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's like the coolest place, but like, delicious definitely go there entourage is a show that doesn't exactly age well but it certainly is what like in a post me too vibes oh yeah which they even do in the later seasons i mean for anyone that's like oh man i wish sex and city had gone on for a few more seasons watch season seven and eight of entourage and you'll be like oh no there's really no show that should go beyond six seasons unless you're a procedural like a a gray's anatomy or a a law and order but there is something very comforting about rewatching entourage because the stakes are so low it is always is vince gonna do the movie or is he not gonna do the movie and guess what he does the movie <laughs> and i'm i'm here for any show that has breakneck ball busting dialogue yeah also jeremy piven incredible <laughs> jeremy piven who i believe got me too at some point but oh did he yeah oh, that sucks remember I, when he was on ellen well there's two jeremy pivens there's pre-hair system Jeremy Piven who is in Ellen and makes an appearance as the dentist they go to in heat after the bank robbery gone wrong and then there's post-hair system so it's kind of like a Chris Pine vibe (laughs) there's like a line in the sand Chris Pine has all of his hair Chris Pine has more hair and that's part of the reason why he's looking hotter Actually, and more like Ellen DeGeneres in the show Ellen, co-starring Jeremy Pivot and Jolie Fisher. Yes, I will say as someone that kind of has a career in the entertainment industry, I will say the, the destructive thing that Entourage did is a whole generation of agents and managers watch that show and assume that in order to be successful in this industry, you have to be a loudmouth abrasive asshole for no reason. Right. When... Ari Gold is based on Mark Wahlberg's own agent, Ari Emanuel, one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. Who just married the Stodd lady? Yeah. Anyway, give it a chance. It's fun. (laughs) It's problematic, but fun. Hey, um, I'm just calling with a general life advice uh, question. Uh, I'm 24 years old. I just moved to a brand new big city. And I'm going through the dating scene. I was being single for the first time in a few years. Um, So if I'm going on dates with a guy and they're going really well, we have a lot in common. It seems to be going very swimmingly. But he's really not making any gestures to set up another date. It's mostly just me. Does that mean he's not interested? Or is he interested? Or is he shy? I I don't know. Um, But yeah. So if you're the one constantly reaching out for a date or to plan things, is it worth pursuing it if it's just one-ended? Thanks. I love your podcast and your show, and I'm watching Sex and City right now. So thanks. My name's Katie. Bye. I hate to say it, but he's just not that into you because when you're into someone, you will move mountains to see them. And you deserve to be with someone that shows up for you literally and figuratively. And this also applies to friendships. Like if you have a friend where you're always the one to reach out to hang out with them and they never reach out to you, stop reaching out and see what happens. Like maybe they are a good friend and they'll reach out to you and you'll hang out or maybe you'll never hear from them again. And if that's the case, they need to be out of your life. That was the married person's perspective on dating. I will give you my chronically single perspective on dating so my answer is twofold perhaps i'm projecting but i am also often the person spearheading plans whether it's dates with friends professionally and i have come to realize i do this as modeling behavior like what do you mean like this is how i would want to be treated and if they see me doing this behavior they will reciprocate And I'm here to tell you that rarely happens. And by rarely, I mean that never happens. You're too pure for this world. (laughs) As for does he like you, I mean, maybe... Again, this extends to most facets of modern life, personal and professional. People are really indifferent these days. Like, no one wants to make an effort. Wow, I sound like Kim Kardashian. No one wants to work anymore. (laughs) Get off your ass. Get off your ass and be vulnerable. 
And I don't know why it's this weird voodoo of dating, but whomever likes the person less is in control of the dynamic. Yeah. And that's fucked up to say. But I do... Totally true. I do think it's important for you to bring this up to not only this person, but any other person that you date. You know, that your expectation is that there is a mutual effort made even at the dating stage. Like, I think... Well, hopefully you shouldn't have to bring it up. Hopefully it just, like, happens. Like, if you have to bring it up, then aren't things beyond... Just the point of repair? Chelsea, why don't you think I've gone on a date for a long time? I'm still waiting for a guy that I went on a great date with in March to make a plan that he said he was going to make. But fuck that guy, though. But this is a symptom of dating right now. Nobody wants to make an effort. It's like we all got fucking fucked over on dating apps, so none of us want to be vulnerable with the other person. No, I get it. I do get it. I think for a really long time stating something like that has been hard for me and it still is because i'm afraid of losing people that i care about but in my experience you're probably gonna lose them anyway so you might as well speak up for yourself and just say what your worth is for sure because if you think that he's going to wake up one day and make a plan i can guarantee you he fucking will not amen hello this is a question for both of you we know chelsea can like reference 90s models with the wazoo so who are your favorite 90s models and lauren any input how about current models thanks i like how i'm thrown in as an after thought <laughs> it's no i want i want to know what models you like too no it's okay i i get it chelsea is the fashion queen but the irony is that I used to care about models a lot. Now I could care less. Don't give a shit at all. I know. Don't care at all. But in the 90s, I was obsessed with Kate Moss. She was my everything. She still is my everything. But I also loved, and of course I loved like Naomi Campbell and their friendship and that whole vibe. But I also really loved that crop of just weird looking British models like Erin O'Connor and Karen Elson and Stella Tennant. Like I loved that shit. And then obviously the lesbian models like Jenny Shimizu and Eve Selvale and stuff. But my all-time favorite models are from the 60s and 70s like Marissa Berenson, Verushka, Pat Cleveland, Angelica Houston. Like that's my shit. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't go back that far, and now I'm kicking myself. But No, it's fine. They asked about the 90s. I really love the era immediately after, you know, Cindy, Linda, Christy, Naomi, where it was Shalom Harlow, Amber Valletta. True. It wasn't like... They were like, they were still supermodels, but they weren't like full bombshells in that same way that like Cindy Crawford and like Claudia Schiffer were. Like, I never really cared about that. And like when Giselle came out, I like definitely didn't care about her. That's what I'm saying. It was that few few year period from like 95 to maybe 99 before the Brazilian model Victoria's Secret explosion. Yeah. I also... And before the, like, Eastern European, like, very thin explosion of that kind well, of model yeah, that it, came right after. Yeah, it was, like, Giselle, Adriana Lima in the early 2000s. Then it was, like, Natalia Vadianova and that whole... Yeah. Ukrainian-Russian... Vibe. No, I'm with you. Amber and Shalom, it was all about, like, a pair of model friends. Yeah, they were buddies. And they were so great. It was so fun to see them in that Mugler. Oh, the video, video. yeah, that came out a couple months ago. And then, personally, I just love Maria Carla Boscano. Oh, yeah. She also pulled some looks at the Venice Film Festival. Did you see them? Yeah, she's someone that's just perennially invited to (laughs) film festivals to look great, which I love that. Yeah, she's... Truly amazing looking. I love her too. And then newer models. Bella. Bella and I put Precious Lee. I think of her Versace campaign from last year was so major. Yeah, totally. I like her too. But yeah, we're terrible with the new crop of models. Someone help us. I like Bella because she does feel like a 90s model. Like she has more of a personality. Like it's more about, it's about more than just how she looks. Like she has a whole style. It's cool. Like I'm not as obsessed with her. I'm sure there's like a million people listening that are 10 times more obsessed with her than I am. But I think she's a good model. And I, I, you know, respect. 
Yeah, she also has a Carrie Bradshaw style, and what I mean by that is it lulls you into thinking that if you put a a bunch of random shit together, you could look like Bella Hadid, but you can't. Only Bella could look like that in those clothes. Yeah. Anyone else? No, I, I like I actually don't care. Like it's so weird because I used to be really into them, but I care more about like the street cast Balenciaga models than I do about actual models. You know, that's why it's like that couture show where it was like had celebrities in the show. It's like I care about that more. Right. You know? I don't know if it's weird, but I think I just kind of like OD'd on it or something. Because it does feel, models do feel very homogenous and a lot of them are like half influencers and it's just like not that cool to me. Like the cool thing about Kate Moss is that like she never gave interviews. You just saw these photos of her. Cool as fuck. Whereas models today, it's like they're talking, they're like on Instagram. It's like, I don't want to see that. Also, Every model is a brand and also anyone can be a model. And so it makes it less special. I mean, it's cool in the sense that like there's obviously more diverse models today. But for the most part, that's not true. For the most part, it's still thin white women. Like that is 95% of models to this day. So like it's kind of boring. Or Nepo models like Ella Emhoff. Yeah, but like at least she has like a vibe. She has an aura, yeah. Yeah, I guess Ella Emhoff, she seems like a reasonably cool person. So I'm almost more into that because it's like a personality that's not like a generic model influencer personality. I don't know. Anyway. Hi, Lauren and Chelsea. I'm actually just listening to your latest call-in episode now. And you requested that we call you in with more kind of advice questions. So my question is, uh, Chelsea, I know you are married, and Lauren, I know I'm and a half, and I was wondering if you had to choose a wedding dress right now, what would you wear? Okay, thanks so much. Bye. What I love about the these crop of calls we've gotten is that how much people that listen to the show have a sense of our personalities or like clock things about us where it's like, well, Chelsea's married and Lauren isn't. Well, I think that's like obvious. Yeah, pretty obvious. Um, We haven't talked about the journey of you getting your wedding dress. I was there. Well, it wasn't much of a journey because Tad and I had two weeks to plan the wedding. So I just went to a vintage store, very Carrie Bradshaw, and got an unlabeled dress that it's a dress and a cape it's very much in the style of bill gibb another british 70s designer that i love but if i were to get married now i think i'd want to do either like a really fierce caftan from like valentino or the row or like some like rodarte gown or something interesting also, I think that Christopher Kane has a very good and slept on bridal collection. I'm not necessarily saying it would work for me, but I think it would be a cute look for anyone looking for a wedding dress. If you want to be like a fun, slutty bride. Yeah, the message got garbled a little. I'm not sure if this caller is getting married themselves, but I will answer for myself. It's odd. The older I get, the less that I want a wedding dress. Because it feels less relevant to me. You should do like a little um, wedding skirt suit like Mia Farrow when she married um, Frank Frank Sinatra Sinatra. or like Bianca Jagger when she married Mick Jagger. Yeah, I have. And maybe it's because I do love clothing so much. It's hard for me to justify spending thousands of dollars, let alone tens of thousands of dollars on a dress that I'm only ever going to wear once. And I think this would be the opportunity to ball out and get like a Savile Row white suit. Yeah, 1,000. Also, I'm not a dress person. I'm trying to be more of a dress and skirt person, but like my mother, my grandmother, me, were pants ladies. And I love that about you. Well, thank you. I think you look incredible in suits. And I absolutely think you should wear a suit at your wedding. You could wear a skirt suit if you want to do that, a skirt suit and a little short little veil or something. 
I also think it's about multiple outfits. My friend Kayla recently got married, and I've never been one that's like into, and this is my reception dress, because it's a little littler version of the wedding dress. Like, she did a completely different look. Like, she had a cape with feathers and pants, and it was, it was a whole different vibe for the reception. I was very into that, of having like different moments, quite like um, Chloe Sevigny. Yeah, she had some amazing looks. Well, that's just practical, though, because if you're wearing a gown, like especially if you're wearing some fishtail mermaid situation, but like you can't that's... dance in that. So you actually need to change. And you should because there's nothing that like depresses me more than seeing like a wedding dress deteriorate. <laughs> As, like, the bride gets more and more wasted, and then by, like, the end of the night, it's, like, fucked. I mean, that's cool if you're, like, Courtney Love or something, but it's, like, yeah, just change into something less princessy for yeah. the after party. Yeah. I also think that if I wore, like, a Monique Lulier poofy wedding gown, that's so not me. And just because that's what... I would be so uncomfortable in yeah. something like that. That's like actually my nightmare. I think about Beyonce's first wedding where she had her mother. She was like, I don't care. You you figure out what I should wear. And it's like this poofy gown. And I remember Beyonce later was like, I didn't like that wedding dress. That wasn't me. Yeah, that wasn't great. But to be fair, Tina Knowles is like actually kind of a weirdly good fashion designer. But whatever. I would also love to see you in like, did you ever see Stella Tennant's wedding? She wore helmet Lang. Right. And... That's one of my favorite bridal looks of all time because it is so chic. Also, may she rest in peace. I, it just like it upsets me to no end that she's gone. Yeah, that's one of those deaths that you forget. Yeah, I actually forgot about it yeah. until like this very moment. I'm also excited if I ever do get married. I feel like I'm in such good hands between you and Tat that I would just be like, what do you think I should wear? I'll wear it. Great. Can't wait for that day. That's it. This was a really good batch of, of questions. Yeah. Well, guys, leave us more voicemails, especially of the self-help variety. Chelsea loves them. I do. I can unleash my inner Dan Savage. And I can give more uh, dour dispatches from 30-something singledom. Yeah. Perfect. All right, guys. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.